For anybody who is an admirer of Emily Dickinson and her magnificent legacy of poetry, I recommend highly to you a beautiful book that I have enjoyed reading over the last few days titled Emily Dickinson's Gardening Life, The Plants and Places That Inspired the Iconic Poet. This beautiful book by Marta McDowell uh, not only gives us a great deal of information about Emily Dickinson, but also about where she lived and how she lived, and in particular, the plants that were important in her life. That is, the gardens, the forests, the orchards that uh, played a a role in Emily Dickinson's uh, inspiration. And we find many, many references uh, to this love uh, in her poems and in her correspondence. And uh, Marta McDowell has done a marvelous job of exploring all of this. She is someone who has written extensively on various gardening topics, and she has a particular connection with the legacy of Emily Dickinson in that she was the gardener-in-residence at the Emily Dickinson Museum in 2018. She has written several books before this, including The World of Laura Ingalls Wilder and All the President's Gardens. This beautiful book is titled Emily Dickinson's Gardening Life, The Plants and Places That Inspired the Iconic Poet, published by Timber Press. Marta McDowell, we welcome you to The Morning Show. Good morning, Greg. Uh, Before we dig into the substance of the book, I wonder if you could uh, enlighten me and our listeners on what it means to be the gardener in residence at the Emily Dickinson Museum. What an intriguing title that is. Well, I'm so glad that you like it, Greg, because it is sort of a title of my own creation. Ah. In that, I was at a Emily Dickinson conference in 2017, and the executive director at the Dickinson Museum, Jane Wald, stood up and gave everyone an update on things that, that were happening uh, at the museum. And she talked about their poet in residence and their artist in residence. And I'm sitting in the audience thinking, well, why not a gardener in residence? So I suggested it to Jane, and she, uh, you know, she was all for it. So we, we made that happen. I like uh, what that. Did I, mm-hmm. So what did I do? Um, I dug, right? I dug in the garden. So I, I went up. I live in New Jersey. So the museum, Emily Dickinson's home, is in Amherst, Massachusetts. And I went up for about, oh, six, eight times during the growing season for about, you know, four or five days each. And, and uh, really tried to keep the garden in good shape. You opened the preface to the the book, the revised edition of your book, with these intriguing words. Emily Dickinson was an accident, for me at least, in terms of her gardens and my writing. Tell our listeners about this happy accident that made a whole lot of exciting things possible for you. Yes, well, Emily Dickinson changed my life in a very real way. And not at the time when it might have made more sense, because I had been an American studies major in college. But after college, I took a different path, and I had a corporate job. I worked for Prudential for 20-plus years. And 
I was actually on a business trip. I was driving across Massachusetts visiting insurance agencies. So I worked in New Jersey, and I was up there, you know, sort of delivering the corporate message. And I had a spare afternoon. And I remember it distinctly because I'd gotten off the big highway. It's the Mass Pike, as they call it and pulled into one of those regular rest areas that we have all over our interstates. And there's a brochure rack, and I see a brochure to the Emily Dickinson homestead, it was called at the time. And I thought, oh, you know, that might be interesting. So I picked up the payphone, right? Remember those? <laughs> it was in the, the 90s. And, and I called and said, you know, can I still make it up there if I leave now from wherever I was? And she said, oh, yes, come up. And it's that point when I discovered that Emily Dickinson was a gardener, and I had always gardened, and it sort of opened a door for me onto her poetry and onto this idea that, well, maybe gardening has a connection to writing. Hmm. And so it, it really went from there. Uh, you know, I, I started researching Emily Dickinson almost immediately after that, and then she was the topic of my first real article and you know my first book and I've, I've been working with the museum really since then. One important point you make early in the book is when you write Emily Dickinson as a gardener doesn't fit with the Dickinson mythology. Uh, explain to our listeners and maybe particularly for anybody listening who uh, does not know all that much about Emily Dickinson the ways in which this is true, the ways in which uh, the common perceptions of Emily Dickinson uh, do not jive with the notion of Emily Dickinson happily working in the garden. Well, Emily Dickinson lived from 1830 to 1886. So, her, you know, her life spans the Civil War. It's all contained in, uh, in the 19th century. And uh, but her poems really weren't published until after her death, uh, starting in 1890. So she lived this life. Um, she she publishes just a few poems, you know, maybe a handful during her lifetime. But really, she gets famous after her death. Um, Emily Dickinson was an unusual person, without a doubt. Uh, but when the poems are published... To market it, you know, I think they, they really kind of hyped up this Emily Dickinson as recluse and Emily Dickinson in the white dress. And if anyone knows anything about Emily Dickinson, that's probably the image they have is, you know, the person white dress standing in her bedroom looking out, right, and very reclusive. Um, and some of that is true. I don't mean to, you know, to sort of erase all that, but there's much more to the story. And that's what was a surprise to me. You know, I just thought of Emily Dickinson as someone who wore white and wrote a lot about death. Um, but I was happy to learn more and then share more about her. Hmm. So explain how it is that we can know so much about Emily Dickinson's life as a gardener. I mean, the most obvious is that she makes frequent reference to various plants and flowers in, in the poetry that she wrote. Uh, but we can learn a whole lot more uh, beyond just the poems themselves. Explain the kind of legacy that she uh, left behind or the evidence that uh, still exists that 
uh, help us sort of fill in the blanks as extensively as we can. So Emily Dickinson, in addition to being a really prolific poet, she wrote around 1,800 poems. She also was an absolutely avid correspondent. And if I had, you know, one wish, Greg, it would be that I could be, you know, just for a little while, a correspondent of Emily Dickinson, because her letters are incredibly rich and interesting, and and in many cases, quite witty. Uh, So she left well, we don't know how many letters she wrote, but a thousand have been found and collected. So, you know, those are the ones that people saved and, you know, could, you know, actually put together. Unfortunately, the other side of her correspondence, so all the letters she received from people, she instructed her, her sister to burn them after her death, uh, which her sister did, um, which really hurts anyone who's interested <laughs> in researching an author. Uh, but luckily, her sister did not burn the poem. So, you know, we can, we can thank Lavinia Dickinson for that. Right. For those of you just joining us, I'm speaking with Marta McDowell about her fascinating and beautiful book called Emily Dickinson's Gardening Life, The Plants and Places That Inspired the Iconic Poet. Actually, before we get into anything else, I want to make sure that you explain one really interesting resource that apparently still exists, uh, which is something called a herbarium that Emily Dickinson kept. Uh, This was actually a term I feel like I had maybe seen but never really properly understood before. Explain to our listeners what this herbarium is and what a valuable tool it is. Uh, for us to understand better uh, Emily Dickinson's relationship with with flowers and other kinds of plants. A herbarium, Greg, is a collection of pressed plants. And it's a term applied generically. In fact, the standard herbarium, you know, like the... the um, any of the big universities or botanical gardens or arboretum would have this collection, and they're usually on individual big sheets of cardboard or paper. In Emily Dickinson's day, making a herbarium collection was also a very popular hobby, particularly among young girls and women. And Emily Dickinson actually writes when she's an adolescent to some of her friends. And she says, have you made a herbarium yet? You know, I hope you will if you have not. It's, you know, it's so marvelous. And I'm sending you these, these little leaves and things that you can include in yours. So she would go out, she'd collect leaves or flowers, and she would press them. We think probably in books. She might have had a, you know, a purpose-built press, but... We've never found one, and there's no mention of it. And then once they're dried, she would mount them in an album. Hers was actually bound, so it was like a photograph album. And there are 66 pages, you know, just kind of, I don't want to say crammed full, but arranged with these various specimens. So, you know, when you look through it, you can see the plants that she knew. Some of them are garden plants and most of them are flowers. Many, many of them are wildflowers. And so you can see what grew in her area, because mostly she was doing this collecting by going out and walking around in the 
you know, the woods and on the hills and fields and swamps and things that were around Amherst, Massachusetts. That's such an amazing legacy to leave behind. And one of the things you tell us is that this is wonderful to look at, not just for the particular flowers, dried flowers and so on that are there, but also the artful way in which they are positioned on the various pages. I mean, it just speaks so much to uh, her artistic sensibility on so many levels. So it, it really is, it's a piece of, you know, sort of material culture. It's a piece of artwork in a very real sense. Um, some of them are clearly laid out as a design. Others are more scientific, where all of the, let's say, different violas, the violets and pansies, are arranged on a page together. Uh, so she would, it seems, experiment with things. And of course, we're just speculating because we don't have much in terms of her explanation for what she was doing, but at least the album itself was saved. It's now in the collection at Harvard, so it's very carefully preserved. But you can look at the pages. They've actually imaged them all, and they're available just to look at online, which is a, a great fun thing to do, too, if you're that kind of person. Marvelous. In that same chapter, uh and actually, I should mention that one of the uh, best choices I think you make in the way the book is constructed is that we proceed through various seasons, uh, beginning with early spring, running all the way through winter. Uh, I think it makes a whole lot of sense to do that. And uh, I also appreciate the fact that uh, that those turnings of the seasons n- not only reflect sort of the, the, the yearly life of a gardener, but also in a sense are a reflection in a sense of Emily Dickinson's own life as well. Yes, that, that worked out well. Um, you know, I wanted to talk about the seasons in her garden, but if we think of our own lives, right, we, we're, we germinate, we're born, you know, we, we mature, we hopefully flower and set seed, and, you know, then we all die. And she does, you know, she writes a lot about gardening, and and she does write a lot about life and death. So it, it seemed to make sense to match those two. I uh, like also in uh, this chapter, uh, one of the chapters devoted to springtime, some reference to uh, Emily Dickinson's own education and uh, and the way in which, uh, through various uh, excellent books, she came to uh, know a lot about the field of, of botany, even if she never, I think, formally studied it. And uh, you, you quote uh, one such textbook, Elmira Lincoln's textbook, Familiar Lectures on Botany, uh, which says these words, the study of botany seems peculiarly adapted to females. The objects of its investigation are beautiful and delicate. Its pursuit leading to exercise in the open air is conducive to health and cheerfulness. <laughs> in, other way, in other words, there were, there were plenty of things uh, in the mid-19th century that was not okay for women to do or okay for women to study. But botany was one field where uh, it was perfectly fine. So in, in a sense, there is nothing uh, 
all that exceptional about the fact that Emily Dickinson loved and was fascinated by plants, although maybe she took it to a, a, an entirely different level than maybe uh, some others did. Yeah, so she was lucky in that she was born into a family that believed that young girls should be educated. So that in addition to primary school, she was sent on to high school, and then she also attended Mount Holyoke, what's now Mount Holyoke College, for a year. Uh, And she studied botany in high school and and college. Um, She had that textbook, Mrs. Lincoln's Familiar Lectures on Botany. And and in a funny way, that quote, which is, you know, we now would say, oh, well, you know, that's sexist, they're talking about women, but we're still talking about, you know, getting your children outdoors, nature deficit, you know. And so I think Mrs. Lincoln was sort of preaching the same thing, although, you know, you know clearly directed toward young girls because that's who she taught and wrote for. Hmm. I like a, a, another reference in this same chapter talking about how while Emily Dickinson was studying at Amherst Academy, occasionally uh, they were allowed to attend lectures at nearby Amherst College. And uh, you quote Edward Hitchcock, the president of the college, uh, saying, we found that the admission of girls to such lectures uh, as they could understand was a practice of some years standing, and no evil had been found to result from it. <laughs> so uh, fortunate for Emily Dickinson that she lived in a place where where uh, the doors to uh, rich educational opportunity were, were not at least entirely shut. She really had a, 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 a deep and meaningful life there uh, in Amherst. Yes, and her family had always been connected with Amherst College. Her grandfather was one of the founders her father was the treasurer of Amherst College, and later on her brother became the treasurer of Amherst College. And so they, there were a lot of professors and college students. Um, the, the Hitchcocks, you mentioned Edward Hitchcock, who was a noted scientist, and his wife is also one of the botanical artists who's represented in my book, uh, they were friends of the family. So it was a very cultured life. She was in a fairly well-to-do family. So they had books, and she had opportunities uh, to learn and really develop her skill, you know, her talent that she clearly had. Mm. It sounds like one of the things that Emily Dickinson most loved to do was go on solitary wildflower walks. Uh, to the point where this uh, was almost a, a, a source of concern, and, and maybe it is in some way a precursor of, uh, of how she would live her life uh, many, many years later when she began to withdraw. But tell us more about the ways in which her love of flowers was sort of lived out in her daily life. Yes, yeah, so she did like to go on, on wildflower collecting walks, Although I was really, uh, you know, sort of amazed and pleased when I found out that in addition to going on her own, she also had a really big dog. Um, You know, it was maybe a Newfoundland dog or a St. Bernard. It was a big black dog. She called Carlo, and Carlo was his name. She called him my mute confederate, right? A very big, quiet dog. And uh, so Carlo, you imagine her out walking, but then she would come home. She liked 
to plant things. So she would tend her flower garden. Uh, she had uh, a lovely little conservatory that was attached to the house. And she worked with her sister as well. Her mother was also an avid gardener. So it's not like she was only out in the garden alone. And the Dickinsons had hired help as well. So I don't imagine they, that she did the heavy digging, but mm. she certainly uh, did a lot of different kinds of horticultural tasks. At one point, you say that she was Catholic in her collecting. Uh, that is, I think, in her collecting of, of wildflowers. In what way did she have sort of a widespread interest? Yeah, so in, in her collection of plants, she has, you know, some vegetables. Uh, you know, there are flowers from the tomato plant in there. There's a cucumber flower. Uh, she has a piece of seaweed uh, she has various things that are, are kind of funguses, like Indian pipes. Uh, there are many, many wildflowers, from terrestrial orchids to asters to uh, daisies. There are native plants, not native plants, uh, you know, things only from the flower garden, like Johnny Jump Up. So all sorts of things in there. Explain this... Uh business of two different homes in which the Dickinsons lived. And if we go to Amherst, Massachusetts now, what can we see? What evidence is there of, of where Emily Dickinson actually grew up and, uh, and exhibited this, uh, this love of, of all things green? She was born in a house, a brick house on Main Street called the Homestead that her grandfather had built. And she lived there for the first 10 years of her life. Uh, it had fallen out of the family. So when she was born there, her father was actually renting part of the, the house. Um, it had kind of been converted into a multifamily house. Uh, and then when he got enough money, he decided he was going to buy a house for the family. And they moved oh, around a, a big block, so maybe a quarter mile away. Um, and that's where she lived uh, from age 10 to about age 25. Um, so when she went to college, for example, that was the house that she left to go to South Hadley to Mount Holyoke. Uh, in, the, in the North Pleasant Street house, she really wasn't writing much poetry, maybe you know, 10 or 12 poems during that period. But her father buys the old family homestead back when it comes on the market. And he remodels it. He paints it this kind of light yellow color and puts a cupola on top. Uh, that's when the conservatory is added. So, you know, he kind of gussies it up. And uh, it's in her 20s and 30s that Emily Dickinson is really prolific in terms of writing poetry. So there was something about the move back to that house or her level of maturity or something that really made her start to be very, very productive. And that's the house that's still there. Uh, and next door is the house that her father built for her, his, for his son. So Emily Dickinson's brother and sister-in-law live next door. And so that's about the three acres of the original Dickinson property. It doesn't include the meadow that her father owned across the street. So there was a 10-acre meadow as well. So it was a very big piece of property. Wow. And one just smiles thinking about the kind of joy that she 
experience there and the way in it, it, it inspired so, so much of, of her writing. I want to be sure to ask you about uh, something you say that's quite intriguing at one point. We not only learn about uh, many of the specific flowers and plants and fruits that she loved and grew and tended and collected and so on, but there's a place in the book when you liken Emily Dickinson to one of the plants that she seems to have especially loved, something called Indian pipes. And you are basically saying that sort of the way Indian pipes function botanically uh, is also, in a sense, a little bit the way Emily Dickinson interacted with the world. I- explain to our listeners what you mean by this. Yeah, so Indian pipes are this odd little, it's called a saprophyte. It doesn't actually photosynthesize on its own. It's completely white. And it does look like a little pipe. Maybe it's three, four inches tall, sort of bends over at the bottom. Some people call it a ghost plant. And it lives uh, in a symbiotic way off of the roots of trees. So it has an exchange of nutrients with the, the tree roots. And Emily Dickinson, in her later life, in her, you know, in, especially into her 40s and 50s, she did gradually withdraw from society. And nobody really knows why. You know, was it medical? Was it something about her appearance? Was it psychological? Or was it her own choice? Like, you know, Georgia O'Keeffe moving to the desert or something. Um, so... At any rate, she relied on her sister and the family staff. You know, her parents were gone by then, but, you know, she relied on them to do, transact her business for her, you know, do the errands, get the groceries. Uh, in, in a real sense, she relied on the Postal Service, you know, to take her messages because she really was still very connected to people through the written word. She just didn't see as many of them face to face. Uh, there's one friend of mine who says that Dickinson would have been really great at texting all of her friends if she'd had that at the time. <laughs> Interesting you know, to think about. Yes, I mean, but and one of the, the uh, recent wonderful books about Dickinson is called The Networked Recluse it's by um, a professor at Loyola she, uh, named Marta Werner, and she, she talks about Dickinson being very connected even though she withdrew herself you know, perhaps just to have the creative space that she needed. In our last couple of minutes, I want you to explain the beautiful final portion of the book, uh, which uh, is, uh, I think, a, a part that, uh, I, I, and actually the very final part of the book is what you call Emily Dickinson's Plants, an annotated list. Uh but you have a, a section before that called Planting a Poet's Garden. Explain to our listeners what they will see if they read these particular pages. Well, I wanted to give people a, a way into having a little corner of their garden, um, you know, sort of reserved for Emily Dickinson. If you, if you just wanted to have one plant that she grew, or if you you wanted to recreate her garden, you know, here's a way that you could do it. Uh, So uh, it's always a lot of fun for me when I'm researching a book to put some plants into my garden that, 
you know, I've, I've learned about from this particular writer. It's the reason my garden is really overcrowded, Greg. <laughs> so at any rate, that, that certainly was the idea of it. Um, also, if any of your listeners want to come out from Wisconsin to Massachusetts, we always do one weekend in the summer when we have a, a big volunteer group at the Dickinson Museum where we all uh, work on the garden to try to get it in shape. Wonderful. Well, there is uh, much more to explore in your lovely and intriguing and illuminating book, again titled Emily Dickinson's Gardening Life, The Plants and Places That Inspired the Iconic Poet, published by Timber Press, the author Marta McDowell. Marta McDowell, thank you so much for taking the time, first of all, to create this lovely book and for joining me today on The Morning Show to talk about it. I've really enjoyed this. Best wishes to you. Thank you, Greg. My pleasure.